Let's talk development. Episode five. Hello and thank you for tuning into CDPR's new podcast series that seeks to draw attention to critical economic and development issues in Pakistan. My name is Fiza Sajad. I'm an urban researcher and PhD candidate in urban studies at the London School of Economics, um, and I'll be your host today. Today we'll be discussing key challenges around urban planning in Pakistan. Pakistan currently is the most rapidly urbanizing country in the South Asia region, which means that there are more and more people living in urban areas today with this trend expected to continue in coming years. And accommodating millions of people in already stretched urban centers means that we need to be actively and urgently planning ahead to meet the demands of a growing population. And experientially, we can already tell that cities are becoming even more unlivable. Housing is increasingly unaffordable for a majority of the population. There's growing traffic and congestion. Air quality is worsening with severe health impacts. And there's growing inequality and disparities in service provision across neighborhoods in major urban centers. And many still lack access to clean water, even in major cities. So today we'll be speaking to Dr. Omar Masood to deliberate on these key trends and changes and think about how we can envision and plan for more inclusive urban futures. Dr. Omar Masood has been serving as the CEO of the Punjab Urban Unit, a policy and design think tank since June 2020, he has 15 years of diverse management experience in Pakistan civil service. Prior to joining the urban unit, he completed his PhD in urban and regional planning from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he also holds a master's degree in public policy from Princeton University. So we have certainly a lot to learn from his wide range of experiences. So Omar, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. So to get started, you, know, you served as the CEO of the urban unit for almost three years now. So what would you say are the primary challenges that a rapidly urbanizing country like Pakistan currently faces? Ones that we both need to understand and also find better solutions to. I think, Fiza, uh, 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 in your question and in your intro, you pointed out to some of the more observable uh, primary uh, challenges of rapid urbanization like uh access to affordable housing, uh, the air quality due to congestion arising out of transport, urban sprawl, disparity in uh, municipal services. But I would like to talk about uh, other challenges which are uh, not observable. Hmm. And the first challenge which is not observable is that we can't even observe the observable in the sense that uh, the recognition that uh, the challenges of affordable housing or air quality infrastructure overstretched because of urban sprawl, I think uh, we have still been unable to recognize this as a challenge and converge to a point of action over here. Oh. Uh, what, what I see in my experience here at the urban unit is that the urban problem is talked about a lot, but when it comes to implementation and actions regarding urban challenges, I think uh, uh, there is a lot of uh, diffuse focus over there. And with our sparse resources, uh, uh, a country like Pakistan, which is a developing country, and it is already constrained for resources, uh, uh, we just are unable to sort of forge your policy regarding urban challenges, which has a maximum impact. And I think that is resulting in piling up of these urban challenges even more. And 
I do not want to sound pessimistic, but I think most of our cities are reaching the tipping point. And once we cross over that point, we might end up in a situation which is more irreversible than it is right now. For example, I've talked about the ability to converge on urban problems. Pakistan's experience has been that uh, we've had a very checkered history of local governments and it is municipal governments and city governments and local governments which are the primary actors when it, come to, when it comes to urban challenges uh, or urban problems. But unfortunately, in the last 25 years or the last 30 years, we've never had a sustainable local government system. So one of the primary actors has been consistently missing. And at the same time, the federal or the provincial governments in Pakistan, who were originally tasked with, uh, uh, you know, addressing issues uh, with reference to cities and affordable housing and whatnot, I think they also sort of uh, lost their focus because on and off the local government system would come into being resources would be transferred to it, then the system would stall or uh, the local governments would be unable to continue or a new law or a new local government law would come into force. And again, the system would start from square one. And that over a long period of time has resulted in a lot of diffusion as far as for our focus on the ground regarding urban challenges are concerned. So what you now see uh, or what we talk about is the issue of capacity at local governments. Well, unfortunately, this capacity uh, is due to our own fault because we've been unable to invest in local governments. And because the local governments do not have that capacity to envision what the urban problems are or to envision a solution for that, this whole problem is becoming more and more centralized. And the more it becomes centralized, the harder it becomes to devise a solution which is context-based for a particular city or for a particular locality. You cannot expect, for example, the provincial local government department or the provincial housing department or urban planning department to, say, make an effective plan for the city of Multan. You would rather expect the municipal government of Mughan to be having that wherewithal and those capacities, which unfortunately we've not been able to develop. And I think uh, this has cost a Pakistan, uh, this has cost Pakistan a lot as far as urban development is concerned. At the same time, uh, what is happening in the urban field is that it is becoming more and more evidence-based, more and more data is being used. The strategies of uh, master planning are being replaced by new strategies to plan cities uh, and plan urban settlements. But at the same time, when you are lacking capacity at the ground level, even that is becoming a challenge. So how to catch up with new ways of addressing, say, issues of revitalization or redevelopment of old city centers, or to talk about regeneration uh, in Pakistan as far as uh, big cities are concerned or old neighborhoods in big cities, how do you go about regenerating a neighborhood or redeveloping an area instead of, you know, expanding the city much beyond its original borders. So all these problems have sort of mounted up because of the fact uh, that 
capacities were lacking in the local government. Database decision-making in, in itself is becoming a challenge. While it can be helpful, it is becoming more of a challenge in the Pakistani context. And uh, then you have uh, organizations like the Urban Unit, which are you know trying to uh, find a solution for it, for the government, for the local government. But even we feel sometimes uh, overawed by the fact uh, that uh, you know this is becoming a major problem. So unless we have a point of convergence, which is more grounded rather than having a 30,000 feet view of urban issues, I do not think so that we will be able to effectively address our urban challenges. Absolutely. Just having uh, the absence of local governments has had extremely high costs for our urban areas. And this is something that's recognized by different kinds of advocates of local governments. And it's also, you know, constitutionally, we're bound to have uh, this third tier that's operational. Do you feel at the provincial level that there is any interest in sort of reviving the local government system again? Or as is, it's always understood that it suits their needs to continue uh, with the way that things are currently going? You know, that's a hard question to answer, but I'll be very frank about it. Uh, you know, I think that every uh, politician in Pakistan understands the value of the urban constituency. And I think there is a competition for votes as far as the urban constituency is concerned. So this is the irony of the whole thing. That mm. the urban constituency is best served mm. if you let it go to the local governments. Mm. But unfortunately, this is the other way around. Uh, rather, all governments in Pakistan, especially in recent history, mm. uh, if you look at uh, the trend of development funding or the trend of application of funds, you would see that more and more funds are being, you know, diverted towards the cities where there are major urban problems, and rightly so. But whether these funds are being diverted uh, or used through the local government system or whether they are being used through the provincial government system. So I think the patronage uh, of urban constituency or patronage-based politics in urban constituencies is something which has driven the provincial government to sort of displace the local government from the space from or for which it was meant. That was to provide municipal services and a livable city for the dwellers of that city. Local governments have been increasingly displaced by provincial governments because they feel that urban constituency votes are more important than they have to have those votes for their elections. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's an equation or that's a dynamic that we've been unable to let go of. And every subsequent government in Pakistan has sort of uh, given only lip service uh, as far as a genuine local government system is concerned. I can I can even tell you the more that the most sort of effective or the most serious approach towards having truly. Uh, you know, local governments and truly autonomous local government, which happened during General Musharraf's time period. Then mm. I used to work in the finance department and I could sense and I could feel that uh, the provincial governments were very allergic to the growing power or the growing importance of local governments. They felt that, mm. uh, that a popular mayor may become also a popular chief minister. So... Uh, while, you know, this is accepted uh, world over, you've had uh, mayors 
rise, uh, you know, rise up to uh, occupying the highest public office in a in a country. But unfortunately, in Pakistan, I think there is uh, a a class distinction between a local government politician and then a provincial politician and then a national level politician. I think till we address those issues and uh, we will still be uh, facing this uh, issue on question of seriousness of the provincial government to really have a sustainable local government system. Absolutely. And I think it's so unfortunate uh, given the state of our cities, particularly India at the moment. Um, and one hopes, as you said, that you know, we've reached a tipping point uh, that this may be a kind of wake-up call to to rethink our current approach at the moment. But there's something that you you mentioned earlier uh, about how now in the urban field there's also more and more data that is being used, and there are new strategies that are being employed for planning purposes. Mm-hmm. And you know we we frequently talk about the need for improved and better planning, uh, but mm-hmm. but I always wonder better planning for who um, because much of our planning still relies on legislation that we've inherited from the colonial period. Um, And similar to a lot of other countries, much of our planning standards and approaches are also categorically anti-poor and exclusionary. We also don't acknowledge urban informality, Um, even though many scholars in the Global South, particularly, and I'm thinking of the work of uh, Dr. uh, the late Professor Vanessa Watson, they, they, they show that informality is the dominant reality of our cities today. So, so do is this new kind of strategy or approach that you're mentioning? Does it? Do you think that this is more flexible and one that also recognizes informality? Um, if no, what would that look like? And relatedly, given the kind of politics around planning, and we know that planning is a political exercise, but because some people are able to influence decision making more than others. How do you think more people can have a say in how our cities are planned and governed? I guess we spoke about having more effective local government systems. So that's, of course, uh, you know, one one basic uh, way to ensure that more pe- people are involved in decision making. Uh, but based on your experience, who's making these decisions for us right now? Uh, first, let me issue uh, address the issue of informality and whether in our planning standards, in our planning regimes and what we are doing today as far as city planning is concerned in Pakistan, mm-hmm. whether we are really addressing informality at any level. You know, one is uh, what what an independent observer sees as the importance of informality that may be a researcher or an academic who has done research in Pakistan and they recognize that. The other is mm-hmm. that it is informality recognized in what we call official city planning or, uh, you know, when uh, municipal governments plan or when local governments plan or when a provincial government lodges, for example, the master plan of Lahore, is informality recognized in it uh, sorry to say, it is not. And I think people just don't want to go into that direction because we've, we've just not moved with time. Uh, you know, urban planning as a field in Pakistan has not evolved mm-hmm. like it it has perhaps in the rest of South Asia. I uh, here at the urban unit sometimes look at material which is coming out from India and from Bangladesh. And they, you know, they have, uh, I feel that they have progressed a couple of steps ahead of us and, and and have started recognizing and 
uh, you know, the element of voice, uh, the element of informality in their planning paradigm. But our paradigms is still stuck in the 60s, the 50s, which is the basic master planning document in which you have a series of steps for good master planning. You have a land use plan, then you have sectoral plan, then you have uh, initial visioning, and that, uh, and you have some stakeholder consultation, and then you tie a ribbon across it, and you have the master plan. And uh, informality is somehow not, you know, not addressed. And I think we become hostage to these documentations or these templates. And for that to change, I think for that to change, the way to do it is this idea of the consultative process in any planning uh, in any planning document to broaden or to widen uh, that consultative process. I think that that may be a way of evolving your planning document that starts recognizing formality. I I still think that we would be some steps away from it, but that would be the way to go. Uh, for example, let me tell you of a different province in which the urban unit is working. Uh, we are doing land use plans for the province of KP, which is uh, a northern province and which is not as urbanized as Punjab. And these are district land use plans. So they include urban areas plus uh, rural areas or areas which are not urban. And in that, you know, we had what you call a traditional plain Belinda approach of having focus group discussions or a visioning exercise or something of that, uh, that type, which was sort of replicated from some other planning document, to be very honest. And when we were going over our inception report, the client, uh, the KP government suggested to us, in fact, insisted uh, upon us that we want you to include every as many areas of the city or, or, or of the district. And we used to say that, you know, these areas do not matter. And they used to say back to us that people do not live there. And we were sort of perplexed by that response in the sense we just do not, we, we, we could not respond to that, you know, because that's the basic idea. As long as people are living in some space, they have a say in it. I think that is a fundamental truth that perhaps in our arrogance of uh, learning city planning, we tend to forget or, to, or we tend to actually minimize that as long as people are living somewhere, you have to address them, whether they are living in a formal way or whether they are living in formality, uh, you know, that thing needs to be addressed. Let me share a startling figure with you. The city of Lahore, from where I'm speaking right now to you, that's 60% planned and 40% unplanned. So even in the heart of the city, you have areas and chunks which are unplanned. They look very urban. They uh, they form part of the urban fabric. It looks like it's a very formal neighborhood. But if you look on, if you look at the plan, these these are unplanned areas. And unfortunately, what happens is that unplanned areas are sometimes excluded from the planning exercise. They are not. They are just simply not addressed because our planning works in a very incremental fashion. 
whenever you make a new city plan, and these are very long-term plans like any master planning document uh, is, they work incrementally. So they look at the old plan and they simply build upon the old plan and add new features to it. So if a settlement which was informal or a slum in the old plan, it may be that it may be carried out as a slum or as an informal settlement even in the new plan. And there's just not enough recognition of it at the stakeholder concentration stage or when the plan is being finalized to really address the informality or the absence of informality. And this brings me back to the question of having an effective local government system because it's the local government or the municipal government which has to approve the plan in an ideal world. And obviously, a municipal representative or a local government representative would be more sensitive to informality as compared to a civil servant who is sitting in a provincial department or in a provincial agency. So the idea of uh, the absence of local government and increased centralization of planning will naturally lead to a situation where informality would not be looked into, it would be uh, simply uh, you know, glossed over. And I think this is what is happening in Pakistan. It is being glossed over, over and over again, and over and over again. And over a period of time, the informality becomes such a obvious problem that then that informality becomes actually an urban challenge for me. And why are we looking at informality as an urban challenge is again a moot question, you know, it's a moot point. If we, if we work under the assumption that informality is part and parcel of city, we have to address it both as a challenge, but both as an opportunity also. But unfortunately, I think we've looked at it very negatively or we have not looked at it at all. Absolutely. I, I, the other question was mostly around the politics around planning and who gets to make decisions for us currently um, and, and also about how we can get more people involved in planning. I think you answered that partially already. Uh, but yes. just maybe a little bit about who's making decisions at the moment. I would give you a more, more complete answer that even when you look at outside them or when you step outside your regular political framework of, say, uh, public representatives and civil servants, who do you ask for or who do you look for uh, to get those, uh, you know, planning input or to get those voices which can effectively, uh, you know, contribute to whatever planning exercise you would Again, over here, I think uh, uh, because of peculiar, you know, situation as far as uh, urban land is concerned, I think a more recent phenomenon, and this is something that I worry about a lot, and I, I'm, I'm going on record with it, I really worry about a lot. There is almost, I believe, a very strong influence and almost, I, I believe, a takeover of the planning exercise by real estate developers. I think over a period of time and from people whom I talk to who have been in this field for a longer time than I have been and have been in the field as either planning officers or as officers regulating agencies which sort of, um, you know, implement the plan. 
in the last 20 years, you have seen a real estate development community which is growing stronger by the day. They have a lot of financial muscle. They have a lot of political muscle. And I think they are almost, almost overwhelming the planning exercise at the pressures that they are bringing to bear upon whatever planning frameworks that we have are tremendous. Absolutely. And thank you for, for, for bringing this up also. But I think it is, like you said, extremely worrying. Um, and I think if there's so much power being held by any particular group that has vested interests in the way that a city will develop, um, it, then our urban areas will reflect those kind of interests. And, and we already see that. I recently traveled about three days back uh, from the city of Peshawar uh, to Lahore along the Lahore Islamabad motorway and then from Islamabad to Lahore motorway. And you would not believe, Fiza, that three years ago, land alongside the Islamabad Peshawar motorway used to be a hilly sort of terrain with a lot of depressions and bulges that one would have never thought that it would ever get genodevelopment. It was barren land, so it was not even agricultural land in that sense. Now, if you were to travel almost 60, 70 kilometers outside Islamabad onto that yeah. motorway, you would see an urban sprawl of a phenomenal kind, which I've never seen. I mean, uh, you can actually see small towns and cities just, uh, you know, coming out of nowhere. And how has this happened? Uh, what made it happen? I will identify three or four factors to me. One is, as I said initially, the absence of a sustainable or a long-term local government system. Obviously, there was weak regulatory enforcement. Mm -hmm. And then you have a burgeoning developer community, which is not only being reflected or which is not only manifesting itself in major cities, but it is also manifesting itself in intermediate cities. Uh, so... This community is very powerful. Your local government system is very weak. At the same time, the tendency of citizens of Pakistan to invest in urban land, either for speculative purposes or as a form of saving, has actually sort, sort of these three factors, you know, combined together has sort of set into motion a series of events which we are now only realizing after seven or eight years that what powerful forces we are actually encountering as far as urban planning and urban development is concerned. Absolutely. And, and you're so right about that stretch right outside of Islamabad, which just goes on for so long. And it's all that long. Also, this other uh, idea that you just mentioned about intermediate cities and, and lots of real estate activity happening in secondary cities rather than major cities is also extremely worrying. Because it's not based on, my understanding, based on demand. You know, it's not based on demand for housing, but it's based on demand uh, for for cheap land uh, that can then be used to make as much profit as possible. Uh, but that has long-term implications uh, in terms of sustainability, in terms of the loss of agricultural land. Um, and it's, and and sometimes I'm, I've seen that developers also acknowledge this, uh, but, but because land is seen as a way to, you know, for everyone to save and to invest in 
and there's no other alternative. This this trend is continuing, but it will have disastrous impacts, as you as you outlined here as well. When you talk about agriculture land, you know that is also something which is talked about a lot in policy detail. So mm-hmm. Let me share another facet. It's not that the government is not aware of the consequences of urban sprawl and how it is affecting the availability of agricultural land. But once again, you see, uh, you know, Fiza, uh, we sort of get lost into data. So, you know, this idea of data is something which can be, uh, it can be used very positively and it sometimes can actually even defeat your uh, original purpose. So, you know, when it comes to the agriculture versus urban land debate, you know, the people who are for more agriculture land being converted into urban use, they come up with this uh, figure, which is a true figure that, you know, out of the total land of Pakistan, like almost 3% of it or 4% of it at the most is what you call urban built up or urban urban settlements. So. You know, I've seen it in high-level meetings being said that what is your problem? It's just three or four percent of the land, so we are not encroaching upon life. Yes. I've heard this too. So yeah. see, I mean, I'm, I'm what what I'm trying to convey is that even when data is available, uh, and but people uh, sort of nitpick it or cherry pick data in such a way just to make their point across. So I think. Uh, one thing that I've not talked about so far is this challenge of data. Uh, I recognize uh, being spent many, many years at MIT that, uh, you know, data is very important. But when you when you are on the ground, I think uh, we have to be careful on how we uh, come across uh, as far as, you know, data is concerned. Is it to, uh, is it to further urban planning in a direction in which you can, as you said, can data aid us in some way to reflect informality? For example, mm-hmm. that is you know question which actually comes to my mind. And when you ask this question about informality, I wanted to sort of think about any data that we have about informality. Mm-hmm. None came to my mind. And whether you know having more data would in any way uncover those areas that we feel remain unaddressed or whether having more data would in fact uh, sort of speed up the direction in which we are going. So, uh, you know, you know, these are some of the data-related questions which, uh, which come to my mind when I'm here at the Urban Unit is that while we have spatial data, how to sort of project it in such a way that it uncovers something which we feel that the urban framework or urban planning has been so far unable to address. I think that is the great challenge as far as data is concerned. That That's really encouraging to hear. And, and, and you're right about how, you know, there's just a power with data. And, it, you know, when people use numbers, it, it can just be used to direct your attention entirely towards things that necessarily aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think just... Before we wrap up, I I have to ask. Um, I've I worked uh, previously uh, quite a bit on gender and and planning. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at Lahore's last master plan, for instance, the the team that's listed in there is pretty much all male. 
Uh, and in general, you know, planning remains a male-dominated industry. So has the urban unit thought uh, at all about how to actively mainstream gender in, in planning? Let me first of all answer from the perspective of the urban unit. If you were to visit the urban unit presently, and yesterday was uh, International Women's Day, uh, we had an event because the urban unit almost, I think, half our employees or 40% of our employees, or I'm talking about professional, professionally qualified employees, mm-hmm. are, are, are female. And uh, the urban planning and architecture team is predominantly And um, when you say that it is a male-dominated industry, uh, yes, I think at this point in time, it may look like a male-dominated industry. But if you you go uh, below the first tier of planners, of city planners who are the leads in different projects, and if you go to the second and third tier, you see that it's very competitive and it's very evenly balanced. Gender-wise, I'm talking from a Pakistani perspective right now, and I see, I you know, I see the future uh, of urban planning to be a more balanced future as far as the genders are concerned. In fact, I see that perhaps uh, the female gender would eventually come to uh, dominate urban planning in a way which uh, the males have not been able to. Uh, I found. Uh, you know, my experience here at the urban unit actually tells me that uh, their work is much better. Uh, I mean, this is this is my personal sort of an assessment. Uh, uh, but I'm I'm more sanguine about the fact that uh, you know this field is changing. I think the urban planning field uh, is changing a lot, and urban planning. If you look at the cohorts of students which are being trained in urban planning and architecture in Pakistan, you would see that this is a fairly evenly balanced group of males and females. And as they go into the job market, uh, you would see this ratio of uh, predominantly male to female as uh, you know, changing. Um, but uh, I would also uh, sort of admit to the fact that as far as uh, the planning bodies are concerned, or the association of planners, for example, or any body which deals with uh, the subject of planning in Pakistan, they are very, very largely male-dominated right now. And that may be more of a roadblock, but uh, rank and file, the composition of rank and file definitely rebalancing itself. I think uh, more and more females are entering this field. It's, uh, it's a city-based field. Uh, it's a very uh, professional field, uh, and it's a good field to uh, you know uh, work in. It's 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 a rewarding job, and uh, you know it is something that uh, I feel that women in Pakistan feel more comfortable doing. I mean, this is my my experience from the urban unit. I I'm not mm-hmm. making a generalization for everybody, but this is how I see it. Yeah, and I think the urban unit is also uniquely placed as compared to, as you said, a lot of our planning bodies uh, at the moment. Um, and I and it's interesting that there is a change in the composition of students and people coming into this field. But but like you also said, you know, we need more women in positions of leadership. There's still a lot more that can be done 
But I think because we're, we're sort of running out of time also, I think I just wanted to ask you at the end, just generally, we, you know, you've, you've highlighted a number of different areas that we can, you know, work towards to imagine more inclusive, sustainable cities, particularly thinking about potentially a different kind of urban agenda as well. That's that's not as diffused, as you said. Um, what is there is, is there anything else in terms of how you think we can get we can get to the point of, of not just imagining, but um, but we're actively working towards more inclusive cities. Um, and just link to that, this, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the planning education system and students, but um, when it comes to thinking about the kind of complex nature of contemporary urban issues, how do we also encourage interdisciplinary collaboration across different kinds of professionals, but also beyond uh, professionals when working with citizens as well? Uh, this idea or this challenge, again, I would flag this thing as a challenge. The uh, our ability to collaborate across different fields. I think this has been even a challenge um, from my experience at MIT and when I mm. used to talk to professors at MIT, I remember Amy Glesemeyer, she used to say that, you know, the urban planning is not a strong field. It needs a strong field to partner with. So, you know, you might see urban planners being associated with economics, or you might see urban planners with being associated with information technology. So these are more scientific and more sort of robust fields. Or sociology, for example, that again has a much more, um, you know, robust structure to it. And the idea, and, and you know, I, I've actually experienced it firsthand here in the urban unit. Uh, we have architects, and then we have urban planners, and then we have what, what we call uh, the hybrid, which is the urban planner slash architect. And, you know, this is what I've seen is that the urban planning uh, sort of, uh, has not had that prominence which perhaps architecture or say economics or sociology has had. And what has been happening is that you, you would always see urban planning paired up with any of these or paired up with several of these fields. And urban planning itself sort of loses its identity. Um, and that's the, then you know, that's the great challenge because if, if you do not have that peculiar identity to yourself, the idea of collaboration becomes more challenging. For example, you know, if uh, if it is about urban planning and data, an economist would suggest that yeah, I'm, I'm good at data, just give me the data sets of urban planning and I'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was having, uh, you know, this was a Zoom discussion uh, some months back in which I sort of highlighted this friction here in Pakistan between urban planning and economists, for example. And everybody started laughing online. And, you know... There's a lot of gatekeeping, I think, in the, in the profession also. Yes, I think, um, I think uh, the laughter arose because of the fact that, that I mentioned something of a perennial problem, which is all across... Uh, you know, it is not Pakistan specific, it's just uh, that the urban planner has been unable to uh, stand on its own two feet. And when you are in that sort of a position, 
you tend to be uh, overwhelmed by a stronger field. So you would look at, for example, information technology. Now you have urban information systems. Now, if you read the literature on urban information systems, that is heavily needed towards information technology and uh, algorithm and all that. It's very little to do with the type of urban planning that we did at Dustborn at, at MIT. It is there somewhere on the surface or below the surface, but it becomes very heavily laden with the, the literature of the partner fee. Uh, same goes for economics, for example. You know, you look at urban economics, it looks like a paper from Econometrica, you know, right? Uh, it has equations and equations and regression and regression. And somewhere, somewhere at, at the start or at the end, there is a bit of literature review which is talking about urban planning literature also. Mm -hmm. So the idea of collaboration, I think, is a major challenge. And again, it has to do uh, with your own creativity. And I, I would not generalize this uh, answer in any way. I would rather say that it is the creativity of the urban planner. And we do have creativity. I mean, Kevin Lich had a lot of creativity when he talked about and everything else. So we really need that type of breakthrough knowledge. You know, in, in terms of talking about urban planning uh, in itself as a field which is strong enough. And I think we as urban planner need to espouse our own cause for GIS, for IT, and for economics. We need to sort of imbibe more of this literature that I would like to see an urban planner writing a paper for, say, the American Economic Review. Why not? Why not? Uh, why, why can't this be possible? I, I mean, we invite economists to our uh, you know, planning association conferences. Why can't an urban planner go to that uh, you know, conference? I'm not talking more in the global perspective. But that global perspective also percolates to a country like Pakistan. That's really critical, I think, and we do need to, I think, come together on for this agenda particularly. But it's been such a delight to speak to you and to learn from your experience of working with the government, but also thinking about it by taking a step back. So thank you so much again for taking out the time today. Uh, it's It's been a pleasure speaking to you.